for September 3rd, 2018. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 531. You are not worse than you are. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out and talking about our favorite things, talking about our favorite uh, uh, movies, TV shows, books we've read, songs we've listened to, comics we like, games we've played. But you know what? Sometimes we just like to talk to each other because we are friends. And anything we're thinking, uh, it's more fun when we think it together. I am your friend, Matt Rather. I am here with with my friend, uh, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt. How are you? And in a, a, a surprise bit of uh, of casting, we do not have uh, podcast stalwart Mark Lee with us tonight. He is he is off uh, laboring mightily for Labor Day. But uh, joining us, not not a replacement because we don't replace people, but uh, a wonderful uh, wonderful co podcaster in his own right. It is Mr. Jordan Stokes. Hello, Jordan. How's it going? It's going. It's going very well. Hey, you guys, doing uh, anything fun for Labor Day, Pete? You got anything uh, fun planned for the three day weekend other than record this podcast? <laughs> well, uh, I have started out on the latest uh, line of uh, storytelling in that grand tradition of the metaphysical and uh, spiritual importance of hard work, uh, which is I've started watching Dragon Ball Super. So I'll be watching some more Dragon Ball Super on Labor Day, no doubt, which is all about how the various problems of existence, the universe and society can be solved through weighted push-ups. And uh, it's, it's, it's a mission statement that is far nicer and I think more instructive than many that you get out of entertainment. So if we're going to uh, – there is organized labor, but there is also, I guess, individual labor. I don't know. You could the, the whole labor market of Dragon Ball is very complicated. Maybe that's something I need to write up for the site. Uh, there's a lot of uh, exploit exploitation and non-exploitation that takes place vis-a-vis like the the Kamehameha theory of value. But at any rate, that's what I'll be doing uh, tomorrow. You know, it, it, it only strikes me now that you two are, are the authors of, of some, some extraordinarily long disquisitions on uh, animated works, uh, Fenzel and the Fenzel on Dragon Ball series, and Jordan and the Overthinking Cowboy Bebop series. So, so Jordan, are you, uh, are you watching some cartoons for Labor Day? Uh, Matt... See, one of the things that separates me from you and from Pete is that I have a small child. And once you have a small child, you do not get three-day weekends. The child gets days off from school, and you are forced to contend with the fact that you're watching the child for longer than you otherwise would. So all of the pleasures that I have left in my life consist of going to my childless friends and telling them that they don't know what it's like to have a small child. (laughs) So yes, I am watching cartoons, but not by choice. (laughs) Not the the subtle and beautiful uh, works of, of animated art that you would choose if you had your druthers, but instead something like uh, Thomas the Tank Engine or something, I guess. Yeah. Although, you know, kids t- kids' cartoons today are great compared to the garbage that we had back when we were kids. Um, I, I would highly recommend several of the shows that my son has gotten into to anybody who can, can watch with eyes and listen with ears. Check out the PJ Masks. It's fun. <laughs> um, and I... Uh... I am probably going to do some fun things on the computer, I guess, to to uh, 
to celebrate Labor Day, to to restfully celebrate Labor Day. I'm uh, I'm up. I don't know if I sound any different, but I am out of my normal podcasting digs, visiting my father and stepmother for over the the holiday weekend, and uh, it's his birthday. So uh, he and I are both sort of computer nerds. And uh, we'll probably do some computer nerd things together, which is odd because I do I do that for a job as well. Uh, so the the labor the I I don't know what is the leisure computer and what is the labor computer. Um, I'm not I'm not totally sure how to distinguish the one from the other. They actually all they all look the same. It's a problem with knowledge work generally, right? Where uh, the the distraction box is the same box as the productivity box, you know, and the the source of just kind of I don't know endless uh, news articles or clicking down the rabbit hole of Wikipedia is also the same screen that Matt, you're supposed to look at when you're when you're being productive, you know. Would you say that you're having something of a serial bus driver's holiday? <laughs> I'll show myself out. <laughs> yes, because the drivers for my serial bus aren't working. Um, little uh, <laughs> little hardware drivers joke there for you. Well, we've done we've done before uh, in honor of Labor Day. We've done a podcast about labor where we considered the role of uh, work, and if you recall that that very deep cut of the the podcast we considered the role of work in the popular culture and my contention anyway back at the uh back at the time was that the culture is hostile to working for a living to the idea of working for a living and is much much uh more comfortable with the idea of being a kardashian or whatever but this labor day it's time to uh focus inward in our work on the self I don't know what led me to ask this in the group chat that we maintain with the overthinking it uh, writers and podcasters. I'm not sure I should say writers anymore, Jordan. You're the only writer on the site recently, but we are all we are all podcasters together. Uh, I don't know what led me to ask this, but I asked the two of you: Have you done anything self-improving recently? Do you focus on self-improvement? And asking the question made me realize I had. Uh, a, a whole host of of thoughts and questions about the idea of self improvement um, to start with what is a self and what constitutes improving it? who gets to decide whether it 's improved or not, and to what end are we are we doing this improving of this thing that we call the self but uh, before we dial <laughs> before we dive that deep into it, I should probably just give you to the chance to answer my question in perhaps a more uncomplicated way. So Pete, maybe starting with you, do you do, you do anything self-improving and what, what counts as that for you? Yeah, sure. So I actually have a book club at work, or at least we've had it off and on over the past couple years, where we get together and read a particular book uh, together and then discuss it and share notes and things like that. And uh, one of the the best book that I've read in it is a book called Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High, uh, which is by four co-authors uh, from uh, Carrie Patterson, Joseph Grenny, Ron McMillan, and Al Switzler. In case you haven't realized, this book club is not for fun, per se, uh, but this is a book that's supposed to help you both in terms of communicating in business and in your professional life and also in your personal life. And so I would consider this to be 
within the realm of self-improvement, especially the part of it that draws the connection between this is what you should do when you're at work and also this is what you should do at home. And the idea that these things are the same and that the thing that you're doing at home is there to kind of enrich your uh, relationships, but also that the idea of having good relationships at home is kind of an equivalent sort of goal to having a successful career, right? And that it's like you want to have the best thing, uh, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is a lot like this, too, the Stephen Covey famous book, where it's like uh, the culture of it is it's not just about making your work more touchy feely. It's also about making your home more goal driven. Right. And so I consider these to exist in kind of the realm of what I would refer to formally as self-improvement. I also belong to a club online that sends out workouts that you can do in your garage gym, which is uh, it's on Instagram and Facebook. It's called Street Parking. Check it out. It's great. Um, and they can pay me if they want or, or whatever, but uh, they haven't. Um, that I would that is more in line with the idea of quote unquote improving my quote unquote self. If you consider the self in sort of a material sense, but also sort of like my mood, my my general well being. These things are aided by having a sort of exercise thing to participate in. And yet, even though the self as kind of a physical object, an emotional object, as you've brought up briefly. Uh, are are uh, more involved in this project than they are perhaps in the other projects. I don't consider it to fall under the formal definition of what I would refer to as self-improvement, which is a cultural kind of genre, I guess. But I want to leave that as sort of an open-ended question, and I can toss it to Jordan to see what he's been up to lately with regards to improving himself. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so nothing. Uh, <laughs> well, you've got I think a kid that, to improve, Wait, right? is that right? Like, does all your self-improvement... Well, the kid is just an extension of yourself, right? And that's a totally <laughs> healthy way to parent, right? Yeah. Well, if, if there's a healthier one, I don't want to know about it, because then I might feel obliged to try, which is kind <laughs> of the way that I feel about self-improvement projects. Um, I mean, in a way, you could say that I never stop improving myself. Um, like, earlier today, I ate a, a pork chop, and that was a great improvement insofar as if I were to stop eating altogether, my body would rapidly turn to trash, you know, like in the <laughs> literal sense of a thing that you would bag up and throw away. But that doesn't count as self-improvement, right? Um, I, I mean, do the, the, fair... the sort of like neutral state of being is the brief and, and intense decay into death and ashes. <laughs> Anything like breathing is self-improvement because your current state of being is that you're going to die in four minutes without air. Is that the idea? <laughs> I mean, well, kind of, yeah. Like statistically speaking, none of us are alive, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> take a random sample and and we're just not here so anything that you you take to uh to preserve your life is sort of improving some notion of the self but but we don't call that self-improvement i don't think of it as self-improvement um i do very often think to myself that i need to be better about various aspects of my life but what i do and i, I think of this as a very american male thing to do although i don't know if that's really correct is i think like oh gosh you have to be less less awful about this and then i do nothing um so so that in that sense i'm engaged in a self-improvement project sort of badly more or less all of the time um but in terms of like a formal effort to do better at some kind of thing um which involves an appeal to an outside figure of authority which that to me is what like self-improvement really means um actually the only one that i can remember doing in recent memory is one that was sort of for my child we we're having some uh, he was having some anger issues 
issues. And my wife and I took an online class, or it was it was really, it was like there was an online component, and then it was like we talked to somebody over the phone and did a bunch of role playing for ways to handle children's temper tantrums. And either it worked, or he just grew out of it because it was a phase anyway, and he's very young. But uh, you know, that was a thing that felt like a self improvement project that I did more or less recently. Well, that, so I'm I'm curious about. I guess I should. I should answer as well. I do. I, you know, I don't, I've gone back and forth with like diet and exercise. I'm in a very bad, uh, stretch, but I'm, I'm actually like, I kind of want to return to this, to this language, a very bad stretch or a, uh, a, um, you know, I need to do X, X, Y, and Z and the kind of beating up on yourself that happens, which I think is interesting, both as a psychological phenomenon and as, as a kind of expression of, uh, expression of the internalization of a certain social, uh, you know, societal sort of viewpoint. But I mean, and, and, you know, it's probably not fair for me to say that I've been bad at my diet, uh, by Jordan's standards, where the pork chop is self-improving, I have been improving myself with gusto uh, for the last, uh, you know, period of, period of time. Um, but I do one, I do one practice daily that is like the sort of thing uh, that you're that you're supposed to do, right? The sort of thing that books tell you to do, or people uh, people tell you to do, which is that I meditate daily. Um, for 20 minutes of, of, uh, Vipassana meditation. And I, I, I guess I read like I, from time to time will read books or listen to a taped lecture or something like that, or a video, a YouTube video or something like that from a teacher, uh, about that, which is, uh, I suppose a spiritual practice. I mean, it's not, I don't, I don't totally view it spiritually. I view it a little more practically in terms of, you know, my own psychology and kind of managing, uh, thoughts and feelings and situations and people and difficulty and, and, um, my responses to those things. So not like, uh, I don't really become one with the universe. I guess that would be, uh, that would be a real improvement of the self, but that's like the one, that's the one practice that has been relatively consistent in my life. And I realized I should probably let myself off the hook for not really going to the gym or something like that, because like, you know, life is complicated and hard and, and, uh, takes energy and no one survives it. But the, uh, uh, the so so if you get one you know I probably should should pat myself on the back and and um, and you know give myself give myself credit for doing pretty well but I think there there is a social discourse drink around around topics of of self self improvement um, where it's like it's it's kind of defined by the fact that you're not doing enough of it right that it's defined by the fact that you're not um you're not d- adequate uh right why why would you need improving if you were adequate and there's i don't know if it's particularly american if it's particularly western if it's a particularly a feature of late capitalism i mean i think we can probably tease out a couple of different cultural strands of the you know the sort of fitter happier right the um stronger longer lasting uh sort of drive within us but but there does seem to be something kind of american about the idea of weaponizing your leisure time um in in 
you know, in the ways that we do. I don't know, Pete, thinking about your book club, uh, thinking about a work book club, which is designed to, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I, I like, uh, I came late in life to the, the genre of like management books and things like this as my sort of situation and job and, and livelihood changed. Like it's, uh, it's something that's in my life in a big way. Now, um, I've learned that what got me here won't get me there among other things that I've learned, but it seems like a, a, a work book club is is designed to kind of make you a better worker right and and it struck me while while you were answering that the there's a distinction between maybe being more skilled and being improved in some fundamental way though i guess improving is improving improving your skills i don't know have you has this distinction ever sort of nagged at your mind and and have you thought your way around it at all or any other any other kind of little threads of this that you want to tug at a little bit yeah, sure. And I think it's interesting. I want to put this in all in contrast or comparison with something that we've all done, but which none of us brought up, which is music. Because how do you get better at music, right? You practice. And if you, you have to practice a lot to get any good at music. And I know this because both of you practice more than me and you're both better than I am at music. So I've seen the, the, the proof is the proof of the pudding is in the playing. But the idea that you kind of commit yourself to training in this skill, I mean, it's the same in sports. It's the same in Starcraft in the sense that you practice and you improve and you practice and you improve. And there is something of an elision that happens, I think, culturally, discursively between the improving at and improving, right? At some point, the at drops off, right? I practice in order to improve. At what, right? At playing the trombone, at playing the Protoss, right? With One of those is slightly more annoying than the other, and, and I'll let you know which one at a later date. But uh, it's Protoss. But anyway, for trombone's awesome. Protoss is annoying. Uh, sonic storms are hard to land. But the point is that they're actually not. Anyway, the point is that, that when you're, practicing to improve at something and there's sort of a core skill that is necessary for you to do yes it's going to have tangible and intangible aspects to it right you're not just practicing in order to improve your ability and your dexterity you also want to improve like your musicality and you want to be able to play in with other people better and you rehearse and practice and you do different things at different times uh, but then if you were to do if i were to think about well what would a musician do for self-improvement Right. What what would be if, if the analogy is you playing the piano and that's to improve at the thing. Right. Then what would you do to improve? And I kind of want to, like, toss this to you guys. Right. Is that is there a self-improvement that a musician would do to improve as opposed to improving at the music that they are doing? Uh, I mean, does it have to do with, you know, Yanni and and kind of romantic haircuts and shirts and kind of like figuring out that you want to play at the Acropolis? Is it about like reaching into your soul? Yes, yes, you know? it, is. <laughs> it is about that. As a former as a former uh, owner of a full head of long hair, I can tell you absolutely <laughs> that is about that. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have uh, I have some friends who are real musicians and like, you know, so like they don't practice the piano, right? They practice particular skills on the piano. There's a certain amount of just playing scales and playing uh, like Hannon etudes and things like that that they do every day as soon as they get up that they don't even really count as practicing the piano. It's just sort of what they feel like they uh, they need to do in the same way that we might stretch or brush our teeth or whatever um one of them is a is like a jazz player and he would to improve he would do something like 
like I'm going to learn how to play like McCoy Tyner. I'm going to learn how to play like Chick Corea. And that's a very long and involved process of like listening to lots and lots and lots and lots of recordings and then trying to master the idiom so that he can sort of uh, internalize that style and do a convincing, if you like, impression of it. And then sort of ruminating and digesting it to the point that it begins to naturally inflect certain aspects of his own style, more or less um, without him having to consciously think about it. And then he, that is sort of the improvement that has taken place eventually after six or seven months. Um, but that's very different from saying, you know, for, for I think probably I don't, certainly I don't. Pete, you were saying that you feel like you're less musical than me. Matt, does that seem a little bit out of your ballpark for like what practicing the piano is like? Oh yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a real musician. Like I had a shot at being a real musician when I was nine or 10 and I completely blew it. Um, in that I had a nervous breakdown when I was nine or 10 and quit the piano for several years. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and like, I, cause I had a, um, I was one of those kids who was, who was annoyingly talented on the piano and I had a, like a very high step in music teacher who, you know, got students into conservatories and things like this. Uh, like, and one, she, uh, like we hear one anecdote perhaps will illustrate one day as I was playing my Hannon etudes, uh, the, the clicking, I, my fingernail clicked on the keyboard and she yanked my hands away from the piano, uh, pulled them over, looked at them, saw that my nails had grown some 32nd of an inch or something like that, grabbed a scary looking nail clipper and proceeded to give me at the age of eight or nine, this like cut down to the quick uh nail pairing down to the thing so that like uh you know the sensitive like undernail was exposed and it hurt to play and like i played the rest of my lesson like that it was that level of thing she had she had been taught by a russian teacher who would close the not not like slam but would lay the top of the keyboard uh lid on top of her hands and sit on it to improve the strength of the bridge uh you know as she was playing her hand and etudes or or something like that wow yeah wow so uh, but just think from from the point of view of uh of pete's work book club how improving it was for you to abandon the piano <laughs> <laughs> i suppose and i came back i came back with jazz and and i just never it's i mean it's something that uh, oh wow there's uh i'm uh, here at my um here up at my dad's house, there there is an Amazon Echo device that is talking at me. <laughs> here in the thing, I actually You're I telling the story I, of your own childhood horrors back to you while you're telling us about them. I can't. Uh, I Alexa, contrapasso, uh, please. <laughs> oh my god, Alexa! Yeah, Alexa, heal my trauma. Heal my trauma. But I um. I, I stopped uh, so I stopped playing and I never really went back. Um, I never really went back. I started playing jazz and and I guess I guess my aptitude increased in in musicianship, but never really never really in terms of playing. But but like I like Jordan have friends who are actual like monsters on a particular on a particular instrument and who do it who do it as their job and as something like a vocation, something something akin to a spiritual practice and, and the, at a skill level so high that just the maintenance of the skill level requires constant attention. Like what Jordan was saying, like sitting down. I actually had a piano teacher in college when I thought I could get some of my mojo back on the keyboard. Um, 
I had a piano teacher in college who I was talking about playing Hannon. He was like, oh, yeah, I mean, I, I play through Hannon a couple times every morning. It's not, you shouldn't really focus on that. Focus on, on something else. And like what, what to me was a Herculean task that like, you know, left my carpal tunnels screaming and my, uh, my, my fingers, you know, limp, limp and spent, uh, was to him just, uh, you know, just clearing his throat. Um, uh, but, but I, there was something in, in, and and then stretching, you know, requires the kind of thing uh, Jordan Jordan was talking about. Our uh, Pete and my uh, teacher of literature, one of the great teachers I had in college, whose name was John Hollander, uh, used to say that mastery comes at the point where you can set exercises for yourself, um, where you can kind of diagnose your own next growth area and kind of develop devise for yourself a program for for getting there um it was an interesting thing and he was sort of talking about uh he was talking about literature uh talking about writing poetry and that's a sort of an imitation actually like playing like chick Corea or playing like mccoy tyner or playing like, i mean the guy i would give various toes to play like i couldn't give fingers because uh um, that, would, that would kind of defeat the purpose, wouldn't it? Uh, is uh, is Oscar Peterson, but um, but uh, in literature, this used to be this used to be a, a pedagogical method, right? Like write a paragraph like Hemingway, write a paragraph like Faulkner. I, I choose those because they're so obviously uh, different from each other. But you could get very subtle in terms of the the authors that you were there to imitate and to kind of to kind of um, dissect the rhetorical styles. I mean, I, I know people I've heard interviews with writers who who have typed out the novels uh, of of authors that they admire just in order to kind of feel those words sort of coming out of them in in some way and to kind of get a sense for for what that's like i wonder if that does anything but it I mean, it is a kind of meditative discipline and i i suppose that it that it does something like that but to to pete's to pete's question of like is there something that you do as a musician that is not just improving as a technician right but that is improving on the level of your personhood right the the thing that i can think of i mean i guess you know history or or study you know uh things like that which are true of any discipline but in music specifically it strikes me that that the discipline of listening and improving the quality of your listening is akin to to a self-improvement that goes beyond just the just the technique right just the the kind of skill level and that that a very good listener actually doesn't even have to be a technician of an instrument at all someone who can who can listen uh comprehend and um talk about music in a in a uh profound and and fundamental way um See that I mean that that seems like a it seems like almost a better better class of person doesn't it <laughs> someone who who has right. some kind of like spiritual maturity so that that gets back to the the place where self improvement almost begins to have a moral quality that Pete was talking about and I think that um, if you were to ask my friend who like is so deeply into jazz. Um, whether what he's doing would still have value if pianos were abolished tomorrow, like we, like a memo came down and pianos were canceled and they just didn't have them anymore, right? He wouldn't be able to do that anymore. But probably he would say that having mastered these styles 
which is really first and foremost a process of listening, right? A, a kind of appreciation would be still a worthwhile thing to do and would make you better in some ways as a person than someone who had not taken that time and done that work. So like it, you can't exactly separate it out and say like, well, the listening is the important part because the physical discipline of getting it into your fingers is part of how you do come to have that appreciation. But like th there is this quasi moral component or at least a virtuous component, maybe moral is the wrong word, but like it makes you better. And that's where I think you could call it self-improvement rather than simply, um, getting better at a task, which like all the Hannah etudes in the world, that doesn't make you more virtuous. It makes you dedicated, I suppose, or shows that you're dedicated. But like making your fingers stronger isn't what makes you virtuous. It's uh, appreciating the sort of the art form or something like that. Yeah. And I think that carrying this forward or backward, depending on which way we're looking at time, I guess, to this idea of self-improvement in the general culture as a literary genre, as a pop culture kind of sphere that it sort of exists and permeates certain other parts of life. To compare it to music, I think, is helpful because with music, it's much more intuitive. The The idea that at any sort of professional job, you have your Hannon etude, I guess. Is it Hannon we're saying? I'm not familiar with this guy who is a girl. Is it? H or no, it's a, yeah, H A N O N. And he wrote okay. a he wrote a book called The Virtuoso Pianist, which is a um, a series of sixty, I think, or, or some some number of exercises that are it, are just classics of the genre that that every serious piano student has encountered. Ah, oh, gotcha. They're, they're terribly boring and they go like do 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 forever. And it's probably Hummel, but everybody calls them Hannon. Got it. Got it. So so I would say that in a professional role, you have your skill that would benefit from that sort of refinement. And uh, and that might be the sort of key thing that you do in your job, maybe of two or three of them, uh, you know, for for me, it would be in editing, right, editorial stuff, marketing stuff, you know, a little bit of layout and graphic design. But mostly mostly it's like editing business writing is a big thing that I do for my job. And so I keep my Chicago manual and my shrunken white and and I go through and I read articles and I read the updates the AP makes and I try to stay up to speed with uh being a sort of good editor in the style of whatever whoever it is I'm working for. But but very few people care whether I do this or not in my job, right? Like there's not like a, this is sort of maybe where it differs. Uh, the professional world differs from the scholastic world to a degree that's a little bit jarring for a lot of people. Let me say a lot of jarring for a lot of people in that like the core skill set that you get really good at from practice seems to matter not that much once you get past a certain point in terms of doing better, being, you know, doing better, being better, right? Excelling. Uh, maybe it's something like the analytics that you do uh, in spreadsheets and you do regressions and you do, you know, kind of uh, maybe you do actuarial triangles. You do any number of core skills, you know, if you're an accountant or whatever uh, that you that you practice and, you know, you're a lawyer or such. But the and these get employed over the course of your work, but they either they get employed on a very repetitive basis or they get employed to a degree where your need to keep getting better at them is not really necessary. Right. As, as in, you know, it's unlike, I guess it's sort of like playing piano. Most professional jobs are like playing piano at a Nordstrom's, right. Where it's like, you need to do it X amount of well, 
right? But the main thing that you need to do is do it for Y amount of time, and you need to make the process of you doing it like amenable and pleasant to the people around you and your environment, right? So it's like, yes, they need to find somebody who can play the piano, but they really need somebody who can play the piano at Nordstrom's, right? And so, uh, which I hope that this reference is still current and that Nordstrom's still have pianos in them sometimes because I, I don't even know if Nordstrom's even still exist. I'm sure, I think they still exist, but if you listen to this podcast in a year or two years, who knows what happens to the real retail landscape. But the point being that, like, I feel as an editor having professional jobs as opposed to being a freelance editor, uh, having sort of staff jobs, sort of full-time jobs, um, that I'm like the piano player at the Nordstrom, where most of my success at my job, once you cover off on a certain, you know, relatively, relatively advanced degree of skill, you know, people will be like, oh, they're pretty good at that. Right. Uh, I'll get I'll ask that for their advice if I ever have a question. Right. But past that point, it's am I doing it effectively in my environment and am I doing it kind of amenably to the people around me? And am I kind of serving the general goal of the, the place or the general or specific goal of the place that I'm in and the, and the collective thing that we're all trying to accomplish? Because past a certain point, you can't really do anything alone. Uh, whether it's technological enablement or kind of group orientation, uh, you know, yes, there's this sort of there's the heroic entrepreneurs or the freelancers who do it all themselves. But somewhere along the line, you fit into somebody else's work. And I think that that if self-improvement is anything, it's the being at the Nordstrom part of playing the piano at the Nordstrom's, which is related to the idea of listening well and appreciating and developing and cultivating uh, a sense for diverse, uh, you know, genre or style. Right. Um and that and that this does take on an aspect of virtue because I think it's related to old. I mean, I think it even it even sounds like old ideas of virtue that were originally communicated as kind of moral ideas, but that we now find extrinsic uses for. Right. Is that like uh, Wait, give, know, an example, give an example of that? Well, like like so, for example, uh, is it was it be was it be Aristotle would describe that um, Pericles was great in the sort of moderate application of his sense of justice, right? That Pericles was a great man, great leader of Athens, and part of what he did is he had this moderate virtue that in this sense of justice that he had, that he applied to justice harshly sometimes and less harshly at other times. Um, now, if you were to say, okay, well, what is his job? Right. Okay. Well, his job is that he's in charge of Athens, whatever, whether he's, you know, been elected to that position or he's a tyrant for a given amount of time. I'm a little bit shady on it. Right. But like the piano playing would be like, well, is he enforcing the laws effectively? Does he know the laws? Right. Does he know the how the system of justice works there? Right. Um, and and the way that Aristotle would say it is like, well, yeah, he knows those things. He has a certain knowledge, virtue of knowledge, but the way that he applies it is not necessarily in line with doing it correctly. That's not the the sense of whether you're doing it uh, to the best, right? The sense is uh, whether you're doing it uh, you know, in, in a appropriate degree and we're making the right sort of judgment calls on how to apply it, which come from a growth in virtue over time. And this would then apply to the idea that, well, why would you do this? Well, the big, the big, big answer is that it makes you happy and not happy in terms of like smiley happy, but happy in terms of like long term fulfilled with yourself and what you're doing, because you as a human being are fulfilling the general purpose of living a good life, which is really what people are supposed to be doing, right? You diamond, this sort of supposedly deep and greater happiness that you get from the achievement 
achievement of virtue, uh, which comes not from kind of intense bouts of bashing yourself, which is other sorts of belief systems. And Jordan's already got into that with regards to being like, well, I could be better, but F that noise. Right. Uh, or it's like I could be better. I feel terrible about it. I'm doing nothing. There are entire belief systems built around this, but sort of old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, Jordan said that I really didn't want to just let that go. When Jordan said, well, I just think about how terrible I am. And then, of course, I don't change. It's like you're acting like that isn't like a driving moral organizing principle for like millions and millions and millions of people. Right. And the whole belief systems are built around this idea of like, well, you can't really change. It's foolish to think that you can improve yourself as a human because humans are kind of trash. But what you can do is feel bad about yourself. And that might potentially oh, God. help you we, The three of us must found America. <laughs> Right. Uh, so, so, so Jordan will go to Jamestown. No, right. he'll go to he'll go to Rhode Island or go to Massachusetts. And then, uh, I guess what I'm all about how you use it in the workplace. So I guess I'll go to Virginia. <laughs> no, you then, or yeah, I guess or Philadelphia, and you can be the Ben Franklin of our. Yeah. Of our <laughs> he can write poor, yeah, poor, poor, uh, poor Richard's Almanac or something like that. There's a very there's a subtle. It's actually not so subtle. So I lied about the subtle part. There is a bait and switch, though, Pete. In 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 uh what you're saying that i think is practiced on all of us um and i see i mean i see it sort of happening in my job as i as i sort of take on management it's especially as i kind of have have you know turned to corporate stoogery uh and left the world of professional acting behind at, at least for the time being and uh you know um have moved in in the course of several years from being a practitioner to being a manager. I find that that the technical skills that made me good that that made me advance are now no longer the skills that i uh, that I use day to day or that at that trip me up and it's more along the skills of crucial conversations it's more sort of interpersonal things and things that we would connect more to virtue per se and the challenges that i face are akin to the challenges that i face as a person you know um Patience, listening, uh, sympathy, understanding, um, you know, the stuff that we all struggle with. These are the tools that that when I am successful, I'm able to kind of mobilize these tools and bring them bring them to bear on on situations. But there's a bait and switch. Right. Which is that um, the the perfection, the the eudaimonia of of your the, the, the workplace is not a legitimate source of eudaimonia. Eudaimonia, right? How, how do you say it? Eudaimonia, whatever. The, you, no, eudaimonia. Um, the uh, the way, right. Your job is not necessarily a, a source of that, unless you are unless you are really you know your your sort of vocation is your livelihood as well as uh, you know as well as being your your sort of deeper calling or or thing thing that you care. About about right that, that that's not necessarily the perfection of of those things for the benefit of of making a company um money is not necessarily the same kind of thing as kind of the the perfection of them for what for for uh their own sake for in, in order to be a better uh partner to your loved ones or a better you know uh, uh in relationship to your loved ones in order to parent your children better right that these are sort of that these are are higher ends, right? Than to kind of 
make make uh, then you know wage earning or or the collective the kind of the company profit or or something like that and that that, that that's like these things are different but it I, I don't know if it's American I mean I I hear that you read things people say all kinds of nasty things about Americans we deserve them for the most part I'm given to understand but like one is that we are sort of work obsessed and kind of identify with our jobs in a way that is not necessarily the norm in every culture on earth um, and I wonder if we're particularly susceptible given that if that's true to this kind of bait and switch well I mean well, oh, go ahead Jordan yep I was just gonna say I, I think that the the idea that the workplace is not a proper source of, uh, of eudaimonia or flourishing is something that's actually kind of controversial as to what Aristotle would have said about that um, that Certainly, there are certain kinds of jobs that are wretched, and therefore being really excellent at them sort of wouldn't get you anywhere. But if you are, for instance, a politician, then being a really, really good politician is part of what makes you one of the great. And virtue is just sort of what great people do, and great people are the ones who are kind of conventionally assumed by everyone everybody who knows anything to be great. Um, so I think that it's like, yes, I tend to also think that getting your, uh, your self-worth and, your, and all that stuff from your job is just wrong. Um, but I think that that's also a conventional opinion that I grew up with. So on the one hand, Americans are told, like, uh, you know, identify with your job. Your job is what makes you a person worth anything. You better work real hard at your job. But I think that we also do absorb the same, like at the same time, the lesson that jobs aren't worth anything. You actually get your your value from your family. If you are getting all of your value out of your job, then you are broken. Uh, so we sort of absorb both of those lessons at the same time. Yeah, I think I, I would not go as far as either of you guys, if only in terms of like, I would just take the step back and say, it is sort of conditional. It, it is a it is a contingency in that you have grown up with the idea that work can't provide the fundamental sense of self that you're looking for. Uh, that I would suggest is not the opinion that's broadly held in self help literature, right? Like uh, or not self help. That's a good one. The distinction between self help and self improvement is, I think, a good one here to make. Whereas in a self help book, it would be like you are not your job. In a self improvement book, it would say like if you're better at your job, you know you want to be better at your job. You know that this is something that you want to do, and that's why you picked up this book, right? And 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 not only that, you want to be good, better for your family, too, drawing the connection between those two things. And so I would follow, yeah, follow up on what Jordan's saying in that I, I don't think that the self-improvement culture suggests that it is enough to be good at your job. But it does also raise the idea that transferring all of the idea of how do you – actualize achievement in your life in a way that feels authentic and good for you. Putting that all on things that are quote unquote important leaves out like a big chunk of your life and uh, and that maybe you aren't really leading these double or triple lives like you think you are. Uh, actually, that, that's a that's an interesting idea to bring up. I, I'll, I'll, I'll call the question this. I'm definitely somebody who's lived double or triple lives most of my life, right, where I have one space where I act one way, another space where I act the other way, and then the podcast sure, like, where uh, I talk, talk about Vin Diesel all the time. In, Wait, inventor philanthropist, uh, international man of mystery, right? Right, exactly. But in these different realms, uh, do you think that there that that's really, I don't need, again, I want to fall into the discourse of self-improvement, self-help. Is that healthy? 
right? When really health has little to do with it. I, I mean, in any sort of health is just a word we're using to attribute a kind of unitary value to it. Yeah, but right. the idea of like, you're, yeah, you're yeah, it's it's a provocative question, and I think you have to you have to sort of define your goal, right? Like you you sort of have to define your end, and I think that that the problem uh, not the pro not the problem. Uh, in the sense of being inconsistent somehow, but the problem in the sense of being problematic is that like um, that a lot of a lot of advice is given uh, that presumes a particular end without necessarily checking with you uh, whether that's the the end that that you're okay with. Uh, because I meditate, I'm I'm aware of like self help or or self improvement literature that sort of markets uh, you know traditional spiritual practices of meditation is something called mindfulness, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, mindfulness is a way to be uh, more at peace with your crappy life, right? And less uh, less wounded by the things that hurt you, and uh, less stressed out by the things, the unreasonable things that are demanded of you, and and uh, less attached to the outcome when you are disappointed, and and yeah. that this is sort of that this is sort of that this is is a sort of good right like isn't it good to be mindful isn't this a kind of spiritual health whereas the practice of sort of uh, you know insight meditation that this is taken from is is not about mindfulness of uh not not about like non-reactivity in your crappy job it's more about uh mindfulness of the true nature of reality right mindfulness of the kind of the true nature of your own psychology mindfulness of the the illusory and temporary nature of your thoughts your states of mind uh you know certain aspects of of reality sensory experience and and things like this it's it's not uh, uh, about being a better consultant, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then, right. Sort of to bring it back to what Pete was saying, it seems like um, there's one Fenzel which is the corporate employee and you're you're in this book club where you're learning about how to have kind of tense conversations with your coworkers in a way that has some positive action rather than just getting everybody angry at each other right and that might be good for the corporation on the one hand which is probably why they're providing you the training but you can see a way that it leads to something good for you and presumably you're invested in it to a certain degree um, and that's where that investment comes from is you're being able to see that this is this is good for you. But there's another Fenzel who does the OTI podcast. And I always like to think that that Matt, that you and Mark and and sometimes I get the real Fenzel. That, that's the one that matters. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Not his, certainly not his fiance, right? And for, from Matt Fenzel's point of view, the most <laughs> self-improving thing that you could do is to quit your job and move into my basement so you can podcast all day. We'll slide you cans of tuna under the door, right? Think how much podcasting you would get done. Oh my God, the, 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 the pyramid of root beer cans is going to be rebuilt. So, okay. So in crucial, how crucial conversations would suggest I deal with this is first to identify the possibility that you bringing up that my professional job is worthless is not met with a bad intention, right? Like, and it's like, (laughs) oh no, I shouldn't feel threatened by this. I shouldn't go into fight or flight over this. I should consider that this is being put forth to me in like a charitable way. And I should favor the good intention, right? And if I were to lash, beware lashing out about it, Calm down. Listen first. Right. And then we say, I'm not saying I don't want to live in your basement, Jordan. That's not what I'm saying. But I, <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm I feel very that, heard. 
<laughs> I'm not saying that the casual dismissal of my relationship with my fiance that you just did and suggesting that I move into your basement. I'm not saying that that was hurtful or wrong or bad. I'm just saying it mischaracterizes where my life is at right now, right? which is that I'm not really prepared to move into your basement. Although I, I'm sure that uh, it would be I would be a hit at your family because, you know, I'll play action figures with the best of them. And that's a nice thing to have around somebody with a lot of stamina for that sort of thing with a little kid around. But but no, but um, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. And uh, and what I would suggest in in terms of cultural analysis is that self-improvement books go to a lot of trouble, in my experience, to hammer the importance and purpose of what you're doing, even to the point that they tend to be very thin on actual content, right? And it's like testimonials, stories from the author about how this changed their life, about the journey that their life took to get to this point. And there might be like 10 solid pages of actual information, but it's all wrapped up in a hundred pages of this is what should be important to you. This is what I thought was important to me. This is what I now think is important to me. This is a story from somebody that you'll connect with on an emotional level, right? So it is like, it's not, it's not necessarily just, uh, it is a form of storytelling, right? It's operating in a sort of uh, leisure space as well as in a workspace, uh, you know, and it's trying to connect with you on an emotional level as a commercial enterprise. Uh, I, I don't think that the self-improvement industry relies on on results, <laughs> right? They're like, oh man, did you check the uh, did you check the actuarial tables? Like nobody's marriage was actually saved this week. We're gonna have to start laying some people off, right? Like that's not really how it works. Uh, it's it's how you can get people to listen and how you can get people to participate and read the book and stuff like that. So, and this is an extra and, dimension. And sell the book, not for nothing, but well, yeah, of course, definitely. Yeah. And you know, why would you buy it, right? You would buy it because it connects with some sort of yearning that you have that's real for something. Uh, you know. So I think it would be really interesting to compare those sections of the self-help literature and the self-improvement literature with, like, an AA meeting and then also with um, the kind of televangelists who's like, there's a lady right now in Little Rock, Arkansas, and her cataracts have been healed. Praise Jesus, right? Yeah, Where, yeah. like, that kind, of, that kind of story is meant to make you buy into the idea that your wrongness can be corrected by this rightness, and that – that's a really important part of it. Because so here's the question that I wanted to to ask when I saw Matt put that uh, that feeler out in the group chat, which is self improvement. It's kind of an incoherent concept because if I can improve myself, then I was already good enough, right? And if I can't improve myself, then I can't improve. So. Like these systems that they sell you in the book, it has to boil down to a couple of pages because it was actually difficult, then you would need more than a book to make it happen. Um, but it needs to be hard enough that no one can really ever feel like they've actually accomplished it or just everybody would like read the bullet point thing and solve the problem and no one would ever feel threatened by a work conversation or something like that, yeah. right? Like to the degree that yourself is yourself – it kind of can't change. And to the degree that improvement means improvement, it means moving away from what yourself is or something like that. So I feel like, uh, you know, this again is a very convenient position for me who uh, sort of likes my current degree of filth and wants to wallow in it. But it sort of seems like it would be impossible to ever improve yourself. It's interesting. I think that this dovetails nicely with this tension that we're expressing and exploring around the work self and the personal self and the boundaries therein, because I think 
people even though we've we've gone back and forth a little bit about whether people actually value work as a way towards uh, feeling good about themselves. And I just to keep it simple, I think a lot of people really do. I think a lot of people really put a lot of value in doing good at their job and take a lot of pride in it. Uh, and so I just want to sort of put that out there as a, as a notion. I think it would probably be uncontroversial among the three of us to say that that sort of excellence at worthwhile pursuits is a good right. Yeah. But I would also say that being in the context of doing a job can make you really stupid in certain ways, right? Like, uh, particularly with regards to conflict resolution and cause, cause you are ingrained in these very unnatural behaviors in a working environment, most notably as an adult taking on this surrogate parent, you know, who is your boss who tells you what to do. Right. And kind of guy and like forces you and compels you to action in various ways when you spent a lot of your time growing up learning how to make that sort of decision for yourself. Uh, you know, whether whether it was by design or by nature, you arrived at some degree of, of kind of splitting off at some point, most likely. And now this idea is that, well, for this particular point of your life, you slot in under somebody else who then is in charge of you. And I think that this screws with people a lot. And I think it screws with our sense of self. And I think it. Uh, maybe I maybe I'm just speaking about myself and suggesting to everybody that my story might be in a self-help book or self-improvement book to help like uh, improve. But it's like when I read a book about how not to get in a big fight with my loved ones and it's given to me in a work context, it reminds me that there have been so many situations in a work context where I would have gotten in a big fight with somebody, but I didn't because it was work. Right. Or be, where I would have behaved in a different way with somebody than I did because it was work and and because of, you know, hierarchy and subordination and your livelihood depends on it, you're not really able, I think, intuitively in a lot of cases to bring your full emotional intelligence to bear in these kinds of situations. Like I can very, very rarely, up until only pretty recently, feel like I could confidently tell the truth to people at work. Uh, and I don't mean like, you know, and honey, you need to change them pants, right? I don't mean like, you know, sass people with nonsense, right? Like as, as sort of like performativity of like telling people hard truths they need to hear as if I'm some sort of, inter, you know, some sort of uh, profit on the matter or I have some sort of authority. Because uh, I, I used an inauthentic voice for that reason, because that's not who I am. I mean, more in the sense of like they ask me for sincere advice. It's and I and I give sincere advice and I have a reputation for candor, but I still hold myself back a lot. And I think a lot of people experience that in work, too. And I think it's important, but it fouls with your sense of rad your radar for what to do. Um, right. I mean, do you guys know what I'm you know, picking up what I'm putting down here in terms of like you might need to read a book to tell you that things to tell you things you already know about yourself. And maybe that's part of what self-improvement is, is it's like you have convinced yourself that you're worse than you are. And and in doing so, right, you've lied to yourself, but we're not going to bother extricating that lie because what we're instead going to do is we're going to do it like AA, like Jordan is saying, and we're going to attribute this to higher power, right? That higher power is going to be Dale Carnegie or whatever, like Stephen Covey or Tony Robbins or or uh, or like uh, the, the getting things done guy or whatever. Right. Like we're going to bring an external focus in here and you're going to be able to invest in the external focus to agree that you can't invest in yourself because you're holding yourself back because you've taught yourself not to do things you already know. It's sort of a compatibilist idea of self-improvement and determinism in that in the sense of like you have no you are you are not worse than you are. But in seeking to become better than you are, you're only really becoming what you are. 
Uh, and, and and that that is paradoxical, but I guess at the same time makes more sense than the idea that like, well, I was a b- bad as an entity, but then I read this book and now I'm good as an entity. Uh, it doesn't make as much sense. Well, it's sort of, I mean, it's it's sort of aligned with the the spiritual traditions that you were talking about earlier that think yeah. that that humans are are basically filth. I mean, it's that that some humans are basically filth and some humans are, I suppose, the elect or whatever. And that that like uh, that there's a there's a process of revealing right as that that life chip away at you as Michelangelo chips away at the marble to reveal the beautiful statue of David within. And that like, um, you know, that the process of self-improvement is, I guess, a process in this view of in order to, to maintain a stable self, you have to look at it as a process of bringing your actions in line with your aims uh, or with your in line with your truest aims. You know, somehow, uh, rather than, you know, and, and and your truest aims want you to, to, I don't know, do 20 box jumps or, I don't know, read a, read Moby Dick again. Um, At the same time. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hell of a wad. <laughs> that it is. That it is. <laughs> Scooping it out of the skull of the sperm whale. <laughs> Go ahead, <Jordan. laughs> I mean, I I, uh, I I just think that 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 seems right, right? That uh, that oh, I don't know. Actually, I often think that way. That like uh, that when I'm trying to do something better, I'm trying to reveal that I've always been good. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I tell myself, like, oh, I'm going to learn German this year, right? Because like it will it will be written down at the end of my life that he was the kind of guy who was able to actually learn two languages fluently or something like that, right? right. Uh, there's some version of that that's going on. Um, if there's something that I really don't think that I can do, then I don't try that, right? Like. So I, I don't I don't uh, for instance decide to climb Mount Everest because although I think I can be in better shape than I am I don't think that I'll you know it, it's not even in the realm of possibility that I would ever get get to that level of uh, of physical fitness um, so there, there's a sense in which I have this picture of my perfect self which is uh, as as Matt was sort of saying the angel in the marble or something like that and I'll take uh, halting fitful steps at getting to that perfect itself but no further and there, there is some kind of sense of a limit a perfect me that i'm shooting for and the the self-help book that i would buy or let's say the uh the mandated professional development seminar that i would bother to pay attention and try at would be one that is shooting for that idealized version of the self that i have in my head if there was something else that it would shooting for i would you know i would go and do it because it's mandatory but i wouldn't actually participate with my whole heart right which i feel like this is again kind of revealing about self-improvement culture that often there's a feeling that you have to really try for it to work just like again that they say in a and everything that like if you don't uh if you don't mean it if you don't uh really devote yourself to the program then that's why you watch out which you know not everything's like that you can if you do push-ups a lot even if you don't believe in push-ups, you will get stronger. But most self-improvement discourse is sort of on on the order of you have to clap and believe in fairies. I like – on this score, I mean just, you know, not because not we're recommending them or anything, but like I do like the getting things done system because it strikes me as a way of uh, – Jordan, are you familiar with it? Um, I'm as familiar as a Wikipedia article was able to make me prior to this podcast. (laughs) 
it's a, a guy named David Allen develop, developed this system and has refined it over the course of, of several years. That is a, uh, it's a couple things. It's a theory of project planning. It's a, uh, and a workflow um, that has a couple of interesting features. One is that you sort of capture tasks or you capture projects at a different time than you you do them. And uh, that, so that the capture, the processing, and the work are three sort of distinct, distinct phases. And uh, the goal... Uh, I think is to sort of reveal to yourself um, all of the commitments, all of the commitments, most of them probably unconscious that you have um, that are sort of weighing you down uh, and that that are leading to suboptimal outcomes in your life, whether it's uh, just a, a lingering sense of dissatisfaction or whether it's a more tangible, um, a tan- more tangible outcome. Like I, I, uh, the, the 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 example that I like, I heard it on the internet somewhere, is that the time you realize that you're out of toilet paper is never when you're standing in the toilet paper aisle. Yeah. <laughs> and that that like uh, that the twi- that you know kind of putting a system in place that can bring the knowledge that you're out of toilet paper into the toilet paper aisle is uh, is a useful thing. And also it also introduced a concept of context, which I, I guess is less less. Uh, less important today when we don't have like a a work or a phone or desk or things like this and we always have all of these things all the time you can never not email you can never not phone but but anyway like that that like revealing it is an interesting it would be an interesting thing to kind of reveal to kind of anatomize and and lay out on the table in front of you all of the the things that you think that you should do Right. Um, going back to Jordan's sort of first kind of opening statement of like, well, I should, I know I should do this X, Y, or Z, whatever, whatever it was, um, learn German or, you know, eat fewer pork chops. But the, uh, if you, if more, you could, more, darling. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> eat more pork chops. Yeah, you gotta do pork chops and push-ups. Pork chops and push-ups. Probes and pylons. That's how you do. It. <laughs> and the, um, you know, if you could put all those things out on on a table and sort of negotiate with them, uh, and probably throw sixty percent of them away, uh, I think there's to to a certain extent as we sort of approach or or kind of cross over into middle age, there is a there is a sort of uh, mortality here, uh, mortality consciousness here that there sort of isn't time for for everything, and there isn't really energy for everything um the acceptance of that is uh is a sign of maturity i think and the acceptance of the idea that certain things are going to be more important to you certain aims certain ends are going to be more important to you that that you're going to want to bring those things about more than you're going to want to bring other things about and are willing to let something else go so that you can you know so that you can pursue something that is a, a kind of higher order aim for you like to the extent to the extent that it's it's possible kind of being real with yourself um about about these things strikes me as the the you know so the sort of er self-improving practice and there came a day when Jordan came to his list of life goals and crossed out ten th- eat ten thousand pork chops and wrote in eat five thousand pork chops. <laughs> and it was on that day that he knew death for the first time. <laughs> oh man. I, I like this. It's just an interesting conundrum here because on one hand, there is this notion of the of the 
if not ideal self, then the desired self, that at the end of the day, you want to have always been the person who learned German. But this does require some degree of actual skill building, which is framed as a as an improvement in yourself in general, which we then discussed is kind of cyclical and or paradoxical in how it occurs, because you have to be you have to think of yourself as better in order to seek out to make yourself better. You have to consider yourself worthy. We're really talking about worthiness here. Are you worth it? Uh, which is which is one of the interesting conflicts that arises, I think, between different ideas that we've talked about with regards to judging yourself not as not as good as you might be. Right. There's the idea that you can judge yourself as not as good as you might be in the way that you are worthy of being better. But and in the other way that you are worthless <laughs> in the sense of like, oh, I, I could be so much better than they am and I'm not. Oh, I'm the worst Ver- versus like, oh, I could be so much better than I am. But I can do it and I believe in myself. And uh, I think it's tempting to say that the latter is wisdom and the former is is foolishness. Uh, I'm not sure that that's the case. I think there's a lot of foolishness in sort of every time you come across some sort of shortfall, you're like, but I can change and I will change. Right. And it's like, yeah, maybe you will. Right. But maybe you might have to live with the fact that you're not as great as you think you are. But at the same time, if that turns into sort of self-loathing, then that can be very uh, not helpful for you achieving any degree of kind of happiness or solace or even really accomplishing other good things that might be within your grasp. Right. So it's very tricky. It's very tricky. And I think that that one of the things that self-improvement literature sets up is this uh, this kind of way of saying, well, I'm going to I'm going to improve and it, it kind of allows you to buy a book or involve yourself in a conversation in such a way that it absolves you of that of that anxiety for a little bit. It introduces this hope that you could really be better. Uh, and uh, I think there's a lot of ways in the culture, in a lot of different fields, where people become very, very dependent on the idea that they could be better in the future as a way of guarding themselves against kind of accepting that things are not so great right now. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of foolishness in both overdoing it and underdoing it in all of those cases, I guess. Well, if you're having trouble uh, accepting that you're not so great right now, come to Overthinking It's Patented Seminar this fall, The Angel <laughs> in the Marble. Become the best version of you that you can think that you might become one day. All contradictions will be resolved. All uh, ups and downs will be leveled until a smooth, supple, happy, uh, happy you. Eudaimonia? Yes. No. Eudaimonia. The seminar will take place at 100 times gravity. Bring way to choose. <laughs> All right. I think, I, think, uh, I think we've made ourselves better enough for today. Uh, thank you for listening. And Jordan and Pete, thank you very much for discussing self-improvement, the work, the great work on the self uh, with me today. I really appreciate it. We will be back next week with more Overthinking a Podcast. Until then, visit us on the web. You, you will be greatly improved if you <laughs> visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we support check the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably probably doesn't deserve Matt sell me this pen how much is the pen worth uh, you're asking. I want you to sell me this pen. No, no. I'm, sell- sa- I'm saying I need some background information. How much is the pen worth? Uh, let's see. Click, 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 click. It's it's actually it would come in a pack of four.
for four ninety nine. So I guess it's worth some fraction of a dollar and change. Mm-hmm. I'll give it to you for ninety five cents. Pete, I'll give it to you for ten dollars, and you deserve a ten dollar pen. <laughs> <laughs> 